0: From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Several potential vaccines for COVID 19 are in various stages of development. I'm speaking about that today with Upstate's infectious disease chief, Dr. Stephen Thomas. He's a professor of microbiology and immunology, and he led Upstate University Hospital's Incident Command in response to the pandemic. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Thomas.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So we've heard that there might be a COVID-19 vaccine available by the end of the year. Is that possible?
1: I think that it is uh, possible that, that we will have a good idea about which vaccines are safe and, and have the potential to uh, clinically benefit the recipients. Um, but there's, there's more to a vaccine than just uh, Sort of testing the candidate and and going through that sort of first milestone, um, you know, vaccines. My my mentor told me once when I was uh, starting out in the in the business that you know vac- vaccines don't save lives. It's vaccination which saves lives, and uh, for people to be vaccinated, you have to be able to um, produce enough vaccine and you have to get it to the people that are uh, at highest risk of, of of COVID, and and so the people who will Benefit most from vaccination, and and then you have to actually get them vaccinated. So it's a very complex process, which I'm sure we'll talk more about, uh, you know, on the, on this episode. But uh, my my optimism is is uh, is a little measured.
0: Well, let's do that. Like, can you walk us through what the process of making a vaccine is?
1: Sure, uh, you know. So the first thing that you have to do is you have to understand uh the the pathogen that you're trying to develop a vaccine against so in this case it's a uh, SARS-CoV-2 which is the the virus that causes coronavirus uh uh covid-19 excuse me so you have to you have to understand that it's a virus you have to understand how that virus infects people you have to understand how that virus actually causes people to uh become ill and uh you know, because it's different for different viruses. And the reason you have to understand that is because you have to come up with a plan or a concept for um, where you might be able to target the virus or that infection process um, and uh, either, you know, attenuate it, so reduce the effects of that uh, infection or, or stop it completely. And so once you understand some of those basic elements, then you can come up with, Uh, prototypes, and you can test those in the lab, and you can see if this prototype vaccine can uh, prevent infection of cells in, let's say, a test tube, for example. And then once you have a good feeling about the testing you've done in the lab, then you can go to uh, small animal studies. So these would be things like mice and rats uh, to make sure that the vaccine is safe in those animals and to make sure that it uh, produces an immune response that has the potential uh, to translate over into higher um, uh, species. And so typically we'd go from mice or rats and then you'd go into non-human primates, um, which are you know most closely related to, to humans. And then ultimately you would go into human experimentation. And human experimentation has a couple of different phases. The first is what we call phase one, which are predominantly safety. Very, very small numbers of people is this safe? And then you can go into phase two, which is maybe hundreds of people. And it's not only co- it's not only looking at safety and continuing to look at safety, but now you start looking in depth at the immune response that the vaccine uh, is generating. And again, you make an assessment for whether you think that that immune response could translate into actual clinical benefits, so the ability to protect somebody. And then you go into phase three and Phase three is, can be thousands of people. Some Phase three vaccine trials have been, you know, up to 70,000 people. Um, and, and this is the phase where, again, safety is uh, um, the priority, uh, but it also looks at whether or not the vaccine has clinical benefits. So does the vaccine do what it is supposed to, uh, supposed to do? And then uh, if, if the vaccine uh, demonstrates that it does what it's supposed to do and that it's safe, that's typically the time point when the FDA and other regulatory authorities will look at that vaccine to determine whether it, should get, um, whether it should get a license. And then there's additional work that can occur after a vaccine gets a license. But, that, but that's the general uh, pathway from uh, concept to uh, um, the shelf, <laughs> if you will.
0: What you just described, I didn't realize there's a lot that goes in before you even get to phase one. It sounds like phase one would be where it starts, but what you described, that's months, years?
1: I, you know, so um, on average, vaccines can take uh, anywhere, can take about 10 years to make even more than that. They can cost over, uh, you know, up and over a billion U.S. dollars uh, to make a vaccine. Um, There is, yeah, there's a lot of work on the front end, and I left out multiple, multiple steps. Um, one of the most important steps, um, or, or aspects that I left out is that before you can go into humans, you have to have a meeting with the FDA and the FDA has to look at the vaccine and its performance in animals to see if it's suitable for, you know, for humans. And one of the things that they look at is how is the vaccine manufactured, right? Because, you you can make a vaccine construct in a laboratory for use in animals, but that's not suitable for for people. So you have to make these uh, and manufacture these vaccines in very um, very strict uh, environmental and engineering conditions of uh, the like, you know, biomanufacturing facilities uh, that meet all these FDA requirements. Um, And a lot of what the FDA reviews prior to allowing phase one is uh, how did you make the vaccine and what facility did you make the vaccine? Does it pass all the quality checks and safety checks? And so, yes, there's a whole other very, very big component um, uh, even before even before phase one.
0: And then let's say you make it through all the way to phase three and you've got a vaccine that that's going to work great. There's a lot that happens after that, before you're offering it to patients, right?
1: Yeah. So there's there's three uh, there's three different groups in the United States uh, that um, that kind of weigh in on this. So uh, the the first would be uh, FDA. They call them uh, CBER, uh, Center for Biologics In Evaluations. They they determine whether or not the vaccine can be Uh, licensed and the company can start to sell the vaccine and again they make sure that the vaccine is safe and has clinical benefit Uh, before they review it though there's another group um, it's a collection of experts from around the country uh, that they convene to do an initial look at the data and the information Um, they're called the verbac and uh, they, they will advise the FDA and give the FDA, uh, answer the questions that the FDA has asked that committee to look at specific to that vaccine. And then once the vaccine is licensed, then the CDC has a group called the ACIP, uh, which will then make recommendations for how the vaccine should be used. It takes about a year from the time that a company submits the completed packet until the vaccine has Uh, a determination of whether or not it can be um, uh, sold in the United States. And then once, you know, as I was alluding to before, once that license and marketing authorization has been received, the company still has to set up a system and processes for the vaccine to get to locations where people can then, you know, uh, medical providers can then have discussions with um, uh, patients to determine whether or not a vaccine is a good idea for them and whether or not they should be, you know, they should be vaccinated. Now, that's kind of in the, that's in sort of the business as usual context. You know, we're, we are in a pandemic uh, crisis context right now. So there are a lot of processes that normally occur sequentially, and they occur sequentially primarily to reduce, I mean, there's scientific reasons, but they also occur sequentially to try and reduce financial risk. Um, But in the in, you know, when you're looking at a pandemic, like, which is what obviously we're all involved in right now, um, the United States and these companies, uh, uh, the government and and these companies are doing a lot of things in in parallel at financial risk. They're they're not going to take safety risks. That's just non-negotiable, right? So they're not going to do that. Um, But they might take some financial risk uh and do some things in parallel um that normally they may not. And so that can reduce, you know, that can shorten that can shorten timelines.
0: This is Upstate's Healthlink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Stephen Thomas, a professor of microbiology and immunology, who leads the Department of Infectious Disease at Upstate. And we're talking about development of a vaccine for COVID-19. So how many vaccines are in development around the world?
1: Oh, a lot. So uh, um, well over 125. I think at one point there were about maybe 200 groups that had raised their hands and said that they were working on, you know, they were working on vaccines. About about seven, you know, anywhere from five to ten, the number changes, uh, about, but about five to ten, I think seven is the exact number, um, have actually started uh, phase one studies in humans. Um, there are uh, another seven have entered into the phase two, and then we have one vaccine uh, that, is, uh, that is poised to start a phase three trials uh, later later this summer. So there's, there's a lot, and, and this is not unusual. You know, I, I, I participated in uh, developing candidate vaccines for Ebola, MERS-CoV, which is another uh, coronavirus, uh, and Zika. And it's it's sort of a similar process where, um, you know, a, a crisis develops, whether it's a multiple epidemics around the globe or a pandemic around the globe. Um, you know, the crisis develops. There's a lot of attention and, and financing and uh, focus uh, on the public health problem. Lots and lots of companies get involved, and academic groups, and governments, and non governmental organizations that get involved. Uh, and then uh, over time, as decisions are made and resources dry up and uh, uh, or, or things change with the epidemic, um, you know, one by one, a lot of these companies uh, um, and groups kind of fall off. And then you're left with, you know, you're left with a handful, a handful of uh, of, of groups that are going to try and go the full the full distance. Um, so. You know the U.S. government has has the program called Operation Warp Speed, and they reported it was reported last week uh, in the New York Times that the government has selected the kind of the five finalists that it's going to uh, it's going to support in the uh, in the context of the of the warp speed uh, program.
0: Is it possible we would have more than one vaccine? More than one of these would end up being uh, successful?
1: Yeah. So, oh, I think it's, uh, you know, this is speculation on my part, but I, I, I do believe that uh, it is possible, uh, very possible and feasible to make a vaccine against COVID 19, knowing what we know now. Um, so, that's kind of the, the, the starting point. Um, is it possible that more than one approach could work to achieve that end? I think that's also possible and feasible. Um, is it required? Uh, I mean, this is a new disease to humans, as far as we are aware, uh, within the last six, seven months. Um, And so we have an entire planet, you know, seven to eight billion people um, who are all susceptible. Uh, You've seen the millions and millions of infections that have occurred and the hundreds of thousands of people who have died. You know, this is a big deal, right? And so um, I, I think for us to be able to really vaccinate, large huge chunks of the global population to try and um, reduce the burden of this illness and not have to go through what we're going through now uh, every you know every year then I think there's going to need to be more than one vaccine there's going to need to be multiple manufacturers generating hundreds of millions of doses and there's going to need to be a huge huge infrastructure to um, uh, uh, receive the vaccines Uh, engage with patients and get people, and get people vaccinated.
0: Are there scientists from different countries that are working on this together and collaborating?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, the World Health Organization plays uh, um, a big role in terms of uh, coordination and uh, communication when things like this, uh, when things like this happen. And so, they did with Ebola and again MERS and, and Zika and they've done it with another disease called uh, chikungunya. They've done it with uh, dengue. So they 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 bring together um, scientists from all different sectors, whether they're academic or NGOs or industry, um, uh, you know, government. So they they kind of bring them all together. They try to uh, understand the landscape. They try to understand who's working together, who's not. If they can um, help to facilitate development of partnerships, they uh, they do that. Um, you know, if you look at a map where if you you know put a pin on a map where all the different development activities are occurring uh, for vaccines, it would predominantly be you know both coasts of the United States. Uh, Europe and uh, uh, Southeast uh, uh, Asia, basically. So uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia, and uh, uh, and um, you know, countries in the Pacific. So um, you know Japan and Korea and, and these places. And so um, yeah, so there's lots of people working together. Lots of folks are trying to uh, uh, you know create a solution to this problem.
0: So what if another country? What if Japan comes up with a vaccine that works great um, tomorrow? What, will Americans have access to the va- vaccine? Does the World Health Organization help make sure it's available across the globe?
1: Yeah, no, they don't. I mean, they have a they have a group of experts, so it's called. Uh, uh, sage uh, it's the strategic advisory group of experts on vaccination and immunization and they in um, the United states has representation uh, so they offer an expert opinion on uh, on you know the different vaccine candidates that are out there or if there's just one candidate that's the most advanced uh, they will they will look at that they have working groups or collections of experts who advise, them on those vaccines. And so they have those working groups do very deep dives into things. I've been on, you know, working groups for, uh, uh, for vaccines for, for the sage to advise the sage. Um, and, uh, they can also do qualification of different vaccines. And so they can look at, um, you know, very similar to how regulatory agencies would, would look at it. They'll look at how is it manufactured is it safe does it have a clinical benefit does it do what it's supposed to do and when they put their stamp on it uh, it can carry a lot of weight and countries that may not have as robust a regulatory infrastructure as um, you know the EU or the United States they may rely on that um, they may rely on that opinion to help them decide whether or not they're willing to adopt that product into uh, um, their country, but the United States, uh, you know, it all, it comes down to the FDA, right? So the FDA, if, if a, let's say a South Korean company developed a vaccine and they wanted to, you know, license and, and market that vaccine in the United States, they would have to go through, they'd have to go through the process. Part of that process is that they would have to demonstrate, um, you know, they'd have to meet certain performance metrics in U.S. populations. So they couldn't just come in and sell it. They would have to have conversations with the FDA. The FDA would have to look at the data. They would have to say, we, we think or we don't believe that this could translate to a US-based population, and they may put additional requirements on, on that company. But it's not, uh, you know, it's not a widget that you can just uh, <laughs> you know log on to your website and order the widget, and uh, it'll show up from anywhere on the planet at your, at your doorstep.
0: So COVID nineteen is caused by one coronavirus, but there are others, and I wonder: are there other uh, vaccines for any of the other coronaviruses?
1: So the you know the other two severe coronaviruses: so SARS CoV one, which caused the SARS outbreak in you know two thousand two timeframe, and then the second one, MERS CoV, so Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus. Um, you know, that caused uh, some large outbreaks about six years ago, but it continues to percolate along in the, you know, in the Middle East. Um, There were vaccine development efforts for both of those, uh, both of those diseases. Um, But, you know, public health interventions stopped SARS-CoV-1, you know, start the SARS outbreak. And when there there isn't a problem, it's uh, difficult to convince people that they need to continue to finance and work on and resource, solving a problem that, uh, you know, a lot of folks don't see existing anymore. Um, and then with MERS-CoV, uh, they, you know, they've been in some early, you know, phase one, uh, um, you know, phase one testing of, of uh, at least one candidate, you know, the candidate that I worked on, we, we, we tested in humans at Walter Reed. But again, it's if it's not really a, a major problem or perceived as a major problem, then it's going to be very difficult with a you know a ten a ten year development pathway and a billion dollar um, price tag. It's going to be difficult to get people to uh, um, you know to focus on that issue. I think SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 is obviously a much different issue, and I don't think there's any question. That people um, that people uh, understand and believe that uh, if we don't if we don't come up with a vaccine uh, solution for this problem, we are in for years of uh, uh, potential potential issues. You know, there there are people out there that think, um, oh, you know, we don't we don't really need a vaccine, or this is really not going to be a problem because um, you know the the, the it's not really that severe a disease, and the majority of people who get infected don't get sick and if they do get sick, it's a mild illness, and so we really should just let the you know let the virus infect large proportions of the population and then we'll have natural naturally induced herd immunity um, which means the people that are have been infected will be protected, and the people that have not been infected um, they'll also be protected because there will be you know so few susceptible people that the virus just won't be able to travel, you know, like it can, like it's been traveling now. But to that, I would remind people, you know, Central New York, um, when you look at results of antibody testing in Central New York, uh, only 5% of the population seems to have been infected. What that means is 95% of people are still susceptible to infection. Uh, You know, you look at probably the city on the planet, at least up till today, that has, uh, you know, had the greatest burden of of COVID-19, New York City. Um, and those surveys show that only about 20 percent of the population in New York City has been infected, anywhere between 20 to 25 percent, which means three quarters of the population, you know, is still uh, susceptible, uh, you know, to the disease. So, You know, do you want to go through three rounds of this or four rounds of this to uh, achieve that sort of natural immunity? I don't, uh, you know, I don't think so.
0: You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Stephen Thomas, a professor of microbiology and immunology who leads the Department of Infectious Disease at Upstate. We're talking about development of a vaccine for COVID-19. Can you talk about some of the differences in the types of vaccines that are being looked at? Because from what I understand, there's a, a bunch of different ways a vaccine might be designed, right?
1: There, there is. Um, and uh, they they, kind of, they all focus on a on a common pathway. The common pathway being that they want to expose the body's immune system. To uh, a portion of the coronavirus, and so they want the body to to see that piece of the virus. They want the body to recognize that that virus is a, is foreign, and that they need and that the body needs to develop sort of a short and long term um, immune response to that virus, so that the next time that the vi- that the person sees that virus um meaning they come in contact with someone who's infected and that person sneezes or coughs or whatever the case may be um, that the body can rapidly uh can rapidly deploy that immune response to uh, either you know stop the virus in its tracks by by killing it immediately or by um reducing the impact of that virus uh and the effect that it can have on the body so that's the kind of common pathway the actual component of the virus that gets shown to the body or how that component is packaged and delivered those are the those are the the um that's where you come into some uh, differences and so we have what we call um you know some of the uh the more kind of classic methods would be what we call a live attenuated virus or an LAV vaccine where you you take the 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 entire virus, you weaken it, either you can weaken it, um, you know, using chemicals or changing, you know, some of the genetic structure to it or by um, putting it in using different biologic methods to weaken the virus such that um, the virus is strong enough to replicate in the body and show the body, uh, you know, the virus, but it's weakened enough that it's not going to make people sick. Um, so that's kind of you know measles mumps, rubella vaccines, yellow fever vaccines um, that that's that's uh, they use that technology and that's a very old kind of classic technology and it works quite well um, and then we have other vi- vaccines called um, what we call uh, purified and activated virus vaccines and so you can take that entire virus and you can kill it uh, with chemicals and and remain is just that part that you want the body to uh to form an immune response uh an immune response against and so that's you know that's advisable if you you know there are certain pathogens that you don't want to give people the you know the full live replicating virus right um and so you can kill it this way and still you know get the benefits and, and typically they have less reactions with with some of these killed with these killed vaccines, but they may not have an immune response that lasts as long as, as if you give somebody a, a live, weakened virus. And then there's some new, you know, there's some new technologies where um, you can package coronavirus with uh, other types of viruses. So you could package the virus with, um, you know, what we call these uh, viral vectors, and so. Uh, you could take a, a, a virus that we normally see in humans, like adenoviruses or or even viruses that are not uh, normally seen in humans. Um, you know that's what the uh, so a, a, a VSV or a vesicular um, stomatitis virus, which we see in, um, in other animals, you can use you can use those as carriers, right? So you just deliver, the very specific part of the coronavirus that you want to deliver, and you deliver it in a package with this other, uh, with this other uh, virus, and and that's the basis for the Ebola vaccine that was um, uh, that was licensed, and that's the basis for uh, some of the coronavirus vaccines that are being uh, that are being used. Um, you can sometimes use um, just you know the actual protein itself, right? The, the piece of the virus that's a protein, you can just deliver that. No carrier, just deliver a piece of, of the protein. So, and there are more. Uh, so there's lots of different technologies that are being, that are being um, you know, looked at. And, you know, the, whether you're an investor or you're a partner or you're the government and you're trying to, um, you know, you're trying to make decisions about which vaccines may or may not have the greatest likelihood of success, uh, they do look at the they do look at the technology that's being used, and and they do make judgments based on that, uh, you know, based on that technology.
0: Is there one that's inherently safer than another?
1: Oh, they all you know they all have their pros and cons. Honestly, um, you could make a very very safe vaccine that um, that doesn't work, <laughs> or you could make a vaccine that causes reactions in people like fevers or body aches or muscle aches, things like that. Um, you know, that just aren't acceptable and just won't be tolerated. And, and, uh, but it would really work. It would work well, (laughs) but it's not, uh, you know, you gotta find the, you have to find, you know, the sweet spot. Um, and, and again, with some of these new technologies, there are new theoretical concerns that people, um, you know, have to think about. So these kind of DNA based vaccines, um, that have been explored for many, many years. Um, you know, people always get concerned about whether, uh, I mean, it's a theoretical concern. It has not, has not happened, but you know, whether or not, if I'm getting a DNA vaccine, could that somehow, um, impact my own DNA? Could that cause, you know, other diseases, uh, autoimmune diseases and things like that. But, um, so, you know, every, every vaccine approach is, uh, is different, and every vaccine approach has unique uh, pros and cons that have to be considered.
0: But if I heard you correctly, um, any vaccine is going to sort of depend on the body's immune system or reaction. So are vaccines, any vaccine that's developed, is it going to work for people who have compromised immune systems? the very people that are at most at risk for COVID, right?
1: Yeah. Uh, yes. I mean, you can, You so there's a safety component and then there's an efficacy component, um, the safety component. So for example, people who are immunosuppressed, we typically don't like to give them live virus vaccines, right? Because the live virus vaccine, it replicates at a low level um, and we, Harness the body's immune system to ensure that it replicates at a low level. Um, so you don't want to give that vaccine to somebody that may not be able um, to keep the replication in check, if you will. Right. Um, so we invent other types of vaccines, same disease, for people who, um, you know, for people who are who are immunosuppressed. Um, but we have there are other ways that we can uh, overcome some of the challenges that, uh, an older person's immune system may, you know, may present. And that might be a change in the dose, be a change in the schedule. It might be that we need to use uh, something called, um, it's, it's called an, an adjuvant. And so, uh, what that does is it's an additional component to a vaccine. And it basically, it, uh, Sort of revs up the immune uh, system engine in the person such that when they get the vaccine uh, um, the system's already revved up and ready to go and ready to receive that uh, that that foreign virus that we talked about uh and so that they can create an immune response and so uh, adjuvants are used in a lot of different um, vaccines and they and they work well so so there are uh you know you bring up a good point because we we develop vaccines for the people that are at greatest, you know, we, we develop vaccines to address a public health need. The public health need is typically associated with where the greatest burden of disease is and um, how you define that can vary with COVID-19. Certainly the data show us that, you know, a, the popu- a population that experiences very severe COVID and doesn't do well with COVID are the older, uh, older folks who have other medical problems, and it's these same people that can be difficult to effectively immunize. And so, um, yeah, so we have to, and and they are doing this, vaccine manufacturers are thinking, okay, well, I have to make a vaccine for people over 60 years of age. What tools might I need to, you know, have in my uh, toolbox to be able to overcome uh, the challenges that someone of that age with other medical problems may present to me?
0: and what about people who have antibodies to covid are they gonna need a vaccine or or is that it their their antibodies provide protection
1: i i really wish i knew the answer to that question that's uh um it's a very important question it's a question that we need to find out the answer um as quickly as possible and uh you know it's lots of people are working on it but it really is not it is not clear so does everyone who's infected develop a uh, viable and functional immune response uh, that will protect them against future reinfection or protect them against disease if they do get reinfected? You know, we don't know that. Um, for people that do develop antibodies that we can measure, um, if if we can measure that, does that mean that they are protected? We don't know that either. Are there experiments and observations that that seem to indicate that that might be the case yes there are Uh, but there's always um you know there's always kind of the outliers and and uh you know we see those and it's very it's uh it's frustrating (laughs) because you would like to create a common narrative that um you know uh makes everyone feel good about what the target may be for vaccination and and what we need to achieve to make sure that we can protect people through vaccination. But it's it's a little bit uh, elusive right now.
0: Would the vaccine for COVID-19 be one of the vaccines where you get a shot for life? Or would it be something like the flu vaccine where every fall you have to be revaccinated?
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, ideally... You would have the, you know, the ideal um, and and we call, when we start making vaccines, we we develop what's called a TPP. It's a target product profile and it's basically the ideal characteristics that a vaccine would have. So the TPP for a COVID vaccine would be, it's um, very safe, it's a single shot and it provides you protection for the rest of your life. And it can be used in all ages of people, that would be the ideal. Um, then when you get towards the non-ideal <laughs> end of things, you get into situations like you just mentioned. So it would be, you know, a vaccine that requires multiple doses, a vaccine that can only be used in certain populations, and a vaccine that has to be readministered uh, you know, every year with flu. We have to administer new vaccines every year because the virus is changing uh, its genetic fingerprint enough such that last year's vaccine won't work for this year's vaccine. Right, the match is not uh, the match is not there. Um, you know, the current data with uh, with SARS-CoV-2 is that it's a relatively stable virus. I mean, is the genetic fingerprint changing over time? It is. But is what is the significance of that change right now? You know, we have not seen uh, or do not understand the uh, significance of those uh, of those changes, and so the hope is that SARS-CoV-2 and and, and COVID-19 that it's a disease like many other diseases where um, a single vaccination or a single uh, a vaccine uh, would work across multiple years and multiple populations, and and, uh, you may need a booster here and there, but, you know, one vaccine will do the trick.
0: This is Upstate's HealthLink air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Stephen Thomas, who leads the Department of Infectious Disease at Upstate. As these vaccines that are being developed are sort of working their way through the phases, do you think it's possible that Upstate uh, would be a place that would be testing a COVID vaccine sometime in the future?
1: I certainly hope so. I mean, this is—I um, mean, it's 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 what I do for a living. It's what my colleagues do for a living. We're, you know, we are um, we are physician scientists, and so what that means is that we wear we wear two hats. On we wear the hat of taking care of patients and uh, and understanding what the problems are that are affecting our patients, and we are we are wear the other hat of trying to um, work in teams to help develop. Solution to those problems, um, so that's the first thing. That's what we do. It's our profession. It's what we've been, you know, trained to do. And uh, you know, I, I, you know, personally been involved in this for you know about twenty years. So, um, so for that reason, I hope so. But you know, for the more practical reason, um, you know, this is a great place to uh, to do vaccine trials, and we've done many of them. And, you know, we're an academic medical university, so we have great infrastructure. We have um a laboratory, and we have pharmacists, we have a space kind of set aside for performing uh, clinical research. We have people that are um, expert in in running these uh, in running these trials. we have you know it's not scientific but it's necessary. We have the business infrastructure that allows us to develop partnerships. We have you know we're lucky we have our own institutional review board, we have our own IRB here we have people that are expert in, communicating with the FDA. We have people that are, um, you know, that are able to speak to the community and recruit, right? Because these vaccine trials don't work unless there are people in the community who are willing to uh, take some personal risk for the greater benefit uh, and who volunteer for these, who volunteer for these trials. And, you know, it's, um, you know, just to put a, a, you know, I guess a more practical finer point on it. I mean, it's it's one of the reasons that I came to Upstate when I retired from the Army was to try and was to join a team of people that I knew and, and really enjoyed working with and, and trying to, you know, build a, a clinical research enterprise here um, that, uh, you know, rivals, uh, um, you know, being, being a, a, you know, come up with an audacious plan that, you know, maybe Central New York can be the next, you know, bio, biotech, biomedical research—you uh, know—triangle and join the ranks of San Francisco and Cambridge and you know, research uh, triangle down in North Carolina. There's no reason that we can't uh, we can't do that if we're you know if we're serious. So I really do long answer, but I really do hope that um, you know, COVID vaccines come to Central New York and and that we will be the group that is doing tests because I think we're uniquely positioned uh, um, to do a very good job at it.
0: Knowing that vaccine development usually takes years, if the Americans see a vaccine ready at the end of the year, it, it's an accelerated process. Are, are they going to trust it?
1: Well, yeah. So that's, that is a, uh, that that question has many levels to it. Um, we, you know, we've had over the last couple of years, I mean, there has been an erosion in trust of, vaccines in general right so we've all heard which I don't I don't personally like the term anti-vaxxer I I don't like that term because uh, to me when you use that term you have shut off communication right so there are people who are concerned about vaccines and there are people who have questions about vaccines I think that you know I think that having questions is a good thing. And I think that having dialogue with your physician and your medical provider uh, is a good thing and asking those questions and having that communication is a good thing, right? So optimal, you know, optimal medical care and optimal preventive medicine and optimal public health is a, it's, it's a, it's a collaboration, right? It's it, between medical care and medical provider infrastructure and uh patients and, and their families, and you can't really have a collaboration or a partnership if there isn't, uh, isn't communication. Um, you know, but then there there is another group that, um, you know, they just have made a decision for whatever reason that they are not, uh, you know, they don't support vaccination. And they have lots of different theories as to why they don't support vaccination. Um, you know, most of the ones that I have seen are not really based in, uh, in science. <laughs> They're not really based in, you know, what we have observed for, uh, you know, a, a century or even longer that, you know, vaccinations and, you know, vaccines and vaccinations are probably the most uh, important uh, medical discovery uh, that, you know, the planet has ever, has ever seen they don't you know and they they don't believe that and they have reasons for not believing that and um you know that's that's but that's not the majority of the people it's a it's a loud group it's a group that's very organized and it's a group that has a lot of social media presence and it's a group that tries very hard to convince people to support their their uh, perspective which um you know they have they have the right to do that but it's really not the majority of of people. So to get back to your question, you know, if there was a, a COVID vaccine available, would people would people take it? I, I think it would probably fall along the same lines that all other vaccines fall along right now, which is, uh, you know, the vast majority of people would. There'll be a group of people that need to have a little more intense conversation with their providers, and I would, you uh, know, medical providers, and I would encourage them um, uh, to do that. And then there will be, you know, the smaller group of people who, doesn't matter what the vaccine is they're not gonna you know they're not going to be interested in uh, uh, in taking it and they'll they'll come up with reasons'll come up with reasons for that um i do think it would be interesting it will be interesting to see that when a vaccine is available the um because of the scope of this problem and because it has permeated so many elements of our uh society and it has caused such uh you know chaos and and, and cause problems for everybody. I mean, in every sphere, right, it's caused political and economic and certainly, you know, human suffering and and has destroyed infrastructure and education and all these, all these things, like everybody, travel, commerce, like everybody has been impacted by this. I would be very interested to see, um, you know, what vaccine uptake will, will look like, Uh, because I think, Sometimes people, you know, I'm not really interested in taking this vaccine because I don't see the problem you're talking about. I don't see measles, I don't see mumps, I don't see rubella, I don't see, um, you know, diphtheria, tetanus, like I don't see all these things. Well, it's because we vaccinate people is so why you don't see them. But, you know, we're all starting from the same point with with COVID-19, right? It's everywhere, it has impacted your life. You, you could not, do the things that you wanted to do because of this, and if we develop a safe and effective vaccine, that is a potential answer to, uh, you know, to this to this issue or part of an answer to this uh, issue. So, so I'll be interested to see how it, you know, how it plays out.
0: Well, you've educated us about vaccines this morning. I appreciate it. Thank you so much to Dr. Stephen Thomas. He's a professor of microbiology and immunology and a professor of medicine who leads the Department of Infectious Disease at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.